You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold! The people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this, and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Well, I love 
stories. I'm just a sucker for stories. It doesn't take me long to get involved in something. Uh, I still remember when our oldest child, Finn, uh, was at home and he was just a little kid and he was watching Thomas the Tank Engine and I was getting ready for work and I had to leave to catch the train while this episode was still going. And so when I got to the train, I rang my wife like, what happened? How did it end? What happened to Thomas and Scarloey and whoever? I always have weird names, Thomas the Tank Engine. But anyway, I just love stories. I'm always fascinated by them. I think that's probably why I've studied history, for instance. I love true stories. I love the narrative of history. I love sport because it's a narrative. It's a, it's a story of a season, of a player, of a club, all of these different things. And I don't think I'm unusual in this. Humans love stories. We've been telling stories for centuries, for millennia. Uh, they, they both true stories and made-up stories. As we tell these stories, we tell of the values that we want. We, we speak about the heroes that we look up to and we find our own place in the story as well. Uh, you know, I love watching Star Wars and just, just kind of imagining that I was one of the heroes. You know, I'd, look, I'd love to be Han Solo, but the reality is I'm probably more like C-3PO. But I love the, the idea of being a part of a story. And that's one of the reasons why I love the book of Exodus, because it's a story. It's this gripping narrative that twists and turns of a people who are enslaved and oppressed and find freedom. But then what do they do with that freedom? That's the story of Exodus. It's a story of miracles and mysteries of a bush that burns without uh, being uh, consumed. It's about supernatural judgments. It's about a, a sea that parts in the middle. It's about a mountain clothed in lightning. It has remarkable characters, an evil king, an uncertain hero, a fickle people, a glorious holy God. And best of all, it's a true story. In fact, a story that's so true that it still has relevance and meaning for us thousands of years later, half the world away. That's what we're going to discover as we go through the book of Exodus. And today what I want to do is go through the narrative of chapter one and then pull out two big observations that help, uh, help us to see how this story relates to us. First of all, let us pray. Father, I want to thank you for your word. I thank you that it's true and real and meaningful. I thank you for this story. Please help us to grasp what you are wanting to say to us and to be changed by it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, that was loud, wasn't it? <laughs> if you were reading uh, Exodus 1 in the Hebrew, you would see that this book starts with a bang. In English, it starts, these are the names. But in Hebrew, it starts with an and or a so, which means that Exodus begins already, we're in the middle of something. We're part of a story that has already begun. You see, Exodus is part of a five-part uh, epic, a pentelogy, not a trilogy. The first five books of uh, the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, are what we call the Pentateuch. And they tell this grand story of how God chose Israel to be his people and how he blessed them. And really, it all centres around a man named Abraham. 
in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, uh, he's still called Abram at this point. And we read, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonours you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There are three promises here. First, there is a promise of land. Go from this country and I'll send you to this land that I am promising to you. There is a, the promise of uh, a people. I will make of you a great nation. And there is a promise of God's blessing, of, of him becoming a blessing to others. I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And it's these promises here in Genesis that set up the rest of the people and that lay the, the groundwork for the book of Exodus. And yet when Abraham receives these promises, it seems incredibly unlikely that they will come true. You see, at this, at when he receives the promise, he's 75 years old and his wife Sarai, who had become Sarah, uh, was infertile. They had not had a baby in their long years of marriage so how are they going to become this great nation? And it seems even more unlikely when God repeats the promise to him 24 years later. By that time, he's 99. In fact, when God tells him that this promise is going to come true, he laughs because it just seems so unlikely. But then remarkably, miraculously, God does provide a child and they call him Isaac, which means laughs because uh, Sarah loves the fact that people will laugh with joy over her experience. So Isaac grows up and he has two children, Jacob and Esau. Jacob becomes known as Israel. But you need to understand that there were some crazy family dynamics. If you want to make a reality TV show, just read the second half of Genesis and you'll see these amazing dynamics. And one of the most dramatic things is that Jacob has 12 sons and one of them is Joseph. Now, he is the youngest but he is the favourite. He's absolutely Jacob's favourite. And so uh, his brothers learn about this. They, they realise this and they hate him so much so that they try to beat him up and basically try to kill him. They fail to do that, so they sell him off into slavery and he ends up in Egypt. But as Joseph would say later, what they meant for evil, God meant for good. Because Joseph was a man of great intelligence and character and in Egypt, God raised him up for a great moment of, uh, of prominence and influence. He became essentially the, the prime minister of Egypt and he saved Egypt from this great famine. God revealed to him there was going to be a famine and uh, Joseph was able to prepare everyone for it. And then the rest of his family comes and joins him in Egypt and that's where we find ourselves in Exodus chapter 1. Jacob, now known as Israel, and his sons and their families join Joseph in Egypt, 70 people in all, and they settle. And God blesses them. Verse 6, Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And you kind of wish that Abraham was here to see it because now you can see how many of God's promises have been fulfilled. One man has become a nation. 70 people now, but the, then they became larger and larger. They've filled the land. 
And a descendant of Abraham, his great-grandson, Joseph, has become a blessing to all the nations. Everything looks bright, looks glorious. But then in verse 8, a shadow comes over the scene. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Uh, Joseph had been greatly honoured for his part in saving Egypt. He'd been given great power. He'd been given land for his family. He'd been honoured in his death. But now this new king emerges. He doesn't know anything about Joseph or chosen to to forget. He doesn't care about what's happened in the past. And in fact, he's filled with a kind of dread of Joseph's family. The people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. And so he acts. He sets test taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens and they're sent to work to make uh, great cities in the deserts of Egypt. He's acting out of fear and yet there's something more to it than that. Just look at the way it's described. In verse 12, they oppress the Israelites. They afflict them with heavy burdens. Verse 11, they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. Verse 13, there's there's something cruel about it. They made their lives bitter with hard service, we're told. There's, there's There's a hatred here. And yet it doesn't work. Verse 12, the more Israel were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And so Pharaoh has to go further. In verse 15, he tells the Hebrew midwives to kill all the boys. He wants to get rid of anyone who could become a a fighting uh, soldier. He probably leaves the daughters so that they can become slave wives. But even here, his plans are thwarted. uh, And then he even invites the rest of his people to join in. Verse 22, it just tells everyone, "If if you find a Hebrew child, throw him into the Nile. You've got to get rid of them all. Really, this is nothing less than an attempt at ethnic cleansing. He's trying to get rid of this whole nation. But again, his evil plans are thwarted. He goes to the Jewish midwives and asks them to kill the boys, but they refuse. The king of Egypt asks, why are you doing this? And they give this this answer that uh, probably has some truth in it, if not all the truth. But God blesses them. Verse 20, God dealt well with the midwives and then gives them families. And we're told in verse 20 that the people multiplied and grew very strong. So we're seeing here that whatever Pharaoh tries to do does not succeed. In fact, the harder he tries to get rid of Israel, of God's people, the more they multiply and grow. That's kind of setting the stage for the rest of the book of Exodus. And I want to pick out two things, two things that I see in this passage that I think will help us engage for us as well. And the first thing is the strange privilege of being God's people. And I say that because there is clear blessing here in this passage. God blesses his people and it's all due to promise. This chapter and this book opens with God fulfilling his promises to Abraham. We're seeing them become a great nation and multiply and fill the earth. God is making good on his promises. They haven't been completely fulfilled. There's still a promise of land that needs to be fulfilled. But so much of the other stuff is already happening. And it's all being driven by God's promises. He set his heart 
on his people, on Israel. He promised to do good things for them and to bless them and he's fulfilling that promise. These promises are the things that are are guiding everything that's happening. And this is true for God's people throughout the ages. Uh, God told Abraham that if he trusted in him, he would be a blessing to the nation and the covenant, the oath-bound agreement that he made with Abraham still flows through even today to anyone who shares the same faith. Galatians 3, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So if we, if we come to God, if we submit ourselves to him and become one of his people, we experience the blessing, the fulfilment of those promises to us. In fact, in Ephesians 1, we're told, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. See, all of those promises that God made to Abraham are ultimately worked through Jesus. And so when we come to Jesus, we get to inherit his blessing. I love that phrase, in Christ. It's one of the big ideas throughout the New Testament. When you entrust yourself to Christ, you sort of enter this bubble of God's blessing, so to speak. You have access to it all because it's all secured by Jesus. And so when you're one of God's people, you experience blessing according to his promise. He sets, your, he sets his heart on you and then blesses you. That's how this works. But there's also another side to this. You see, if you were to read Exodus 1, you might also notice that there is a lot of hardship for God's people. Yes, they're blessed at the start, but then things become difficult. They're oppressed. They're enslaved. Their their children are hunted down. How is that blessing? In fact, you could almost argue that the blessing has become a curse. What happens? What inspires Pharaoh to act? He sees how, how much they've multiplied, how they've grown stronger. God has blessed Israel and made them stronger. And so Pharaoh reacts by oppressing them. And there's a kind of irony here too. Because if you know the story of Genesis, you know how Abraham and then his son Isaac really struggled to have children. They were infertile for a long time. Now they've kind of got the opposite problem. As Andrew Reid says, uh, a history plagued by infertility has now become a present overwhelmed by the opposite. It's, It's a weird way of God blessing. So if this is what blessing looks like, why would we want to be God's people? What's the point of this? Well, and, and this God atypical either. See, all through history, it seems to be characteristic that God's people suffer, that they're oppressed. We see that throughout the Old Testament. God's people do eventually get their own land, but then they lose it and they're sent off into exile. In the New Testament, uh, Jesus warns his disciples that they'll be persecuted, and they are. One of, those, one of the apostles, Paul, says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you choose to be one of God's people, to live out that faith publicly, you can expect suffering. You can expect to be oppressed in some way. And that's been the story throughout the ages. The early church, so think of how they would... Um, martyred under Nero or during the Dark Ages or the Spanish Inquisition. You think about communist countries during the Cold War or today in the, in the Muslim world or in China and parts of Africa. And there is even the first signs here in our part of the world where 
Christians are not just being experiencing social pressure, we're starting to experience social exclusion. God's people seem destined to struggle, to suffer and to be oppressed. So how can we speak about the blessing that God's people have? Where is this blessing? Well, incredibly, it's in the trouble. It's in the suffering, despite the suffering. You see that here in this passage? The more they're oppressed, the more they multiply. Every time Pharaoh ups the ante, God does as well and blesses them more and more. And so it has been throughout history. Tim Chester uh, writes about uh, the situation in Ethiopia. He says, in the 1970s, uh, the president of Ethiopia implemented what was called the Red Terror. One and a half million people died and church buildings were closed down. When the president fell, no one was sure what would remain of the church, but Christians had been meeting secretly in homes and the church had not only survived, but had grown. It's the same story in China as well. As uh, one writer famously said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Whenever and wherever God's people are oppressed, they also experience God's blessing. They always grow. They always thrive. It's, it's true for churches and it's true for individuals as well. And so Paul would write in Romans 5 that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. These are the things that God kindles within us in the crucible of trial and persecution and difficulty. And so Paul could actually say we rejoice in our sufferings because he felt God's love poured into his heart, into his life. This is the way it works. The more God's people suffer, the more God blesses them. It seems strange, but the story is repeated again and again. Wherever it looks like God is most absent, he's actually most present in the lives and the hearts of his people. But how do we, how do we live with this? How do we hold on to these promises in the midst of this oppression and difficulty? What's the right attitude to have? Well, that's why I love how we're pointed to the example of the midwives. Verse 17, they're told to kill the Jewish boys, but they refuse. And why? Because they fear God. They fear God. To fear God means to see him as more important than anyone or anything else. And then to obey him because he is the top of the tree. He is the great priority. But it's not just that. I think it's also to see that he is in control, to recognise that his promises are sure and true and that he will bless you either through the difficulty or at the other end of it. He'll vindicate you. That's what it is, I think, to fear God. And when you see this example of the midwives, it's extraordinary their faith. You see, they've lived under this oppressive rule for a long time. It would be easy for them to imagine that the Pharaoh was far greater than God. They would have had pictures of the Pharaoh everywhere. His commands were everywhere. His power was evident. And it would have been easy for them to imagine that God was less powerful. He might have seemed like he was absent. But in their hearts, in their minds, God is still bigger than the Pharaoh. And so they don't fear the Pharaoh. They fear God and they follow him. 
And so God blesses them. Verse 20, God dealt well with the midwives and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. In fact, he even gave them this enduring legacy. You see, we're, we're told their names, Shifra and Puah. That's unusual in this passage. Even the Pharaoh doesn't get a name. In fact, I was listening to someone the other day just trying to work out who on earth this Pharaoh was because we don't know, but we do know who these midwives were because they obeyed God, because they feared and honoured him. They are remembered when the Pharaoh is not. And this is the invitation that God gives to us as well. We may face difficulty. We may face people challenging us, trying to stop us or intimidate us or silence us. And we might fear them. And God says, fear me rather than them. Let me be bigger in your mind than they are. We saw a couple of weeks ago how the Apostle Peter, a man who had been so timid and cowardly, the kind of person I totally recognise because I feel like I would be like that as well. And he became a man of courage. In Acts 5, the Jewish authorities say, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name, the name of Jesus. You hear you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. In their minds, God is bigger than these powers in front of them. And so he would go on to say in 1 Peter 4, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The more he feared God rather than man, the more he stood up for God, despite what man said, he felt God's presence. The spirit of God rested upon him. He experienced it in a beautiful and profound way. And so he says to his, uh, the churches in 1 Peter 3, he says in verse 14, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honour Christ the Lord as holy. Yes, you might find that there is opposition and difficulty. So choose now, resolve now to fear God, to honour him as Lord, and then you'll experience God bless you in that. If the challenge comes, he will be even more present in your life and in your heart. But how can we be sure of that? How can we be confident that that will actually happen, that the promises will be fulfilled, that God will bless us even when it feels like there's just challenge and opposition? How can we be confident that God will win? Well, here's the second thing. Exodus 1 hints at a bigger story, the ultimate story that makes sense of everything. And it does that by pointing back and by pointing forward. First of all, it points back. Look at verse 7 again. The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. I want you to notice those words, fruitful multiplied. The land was filled. I wonder, does that remind you of anything? Well, have a look at Genesis 1 verse 28. God says to Adam and Eve, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Do you see what's happening? 
Exodus 1 is the continuation of Genesis 1. God is, has started a story in Genesis 1 that he's continuing in Exodus 1. You see, it was God's purposes for humanity that they would be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth that he had created, that humans would rule this world and experience God's blessing through it, that we would care for this world and then experience God provide for us as we did that. That was the goal for Adam and Eve. They fell from God, and so that, but that purpose continued on. And God continued it through Abraham, and now we see it through Abraham's descendants. God's people are in Egypt, and they're starting to experience this creation happening again. God's creation mandate is flowing onto them. His blessing is flowing through them. And that gives a greater significance to what's happening here. This helps us see that this is part of this bigger, bigger picture. But it also helps us see what's happening when Pharaoh opposes them. You see, when he opposes them, he's not just opposing Israel. He's opposing God. He's setting himself up against God, just like the great enemy, the devil. You see, the devil has long tried to subvert and prevent and sabotage the goodwill of God and to destroy humanity. In the Garden of Eden, dressed as a serpent, he corrupted Adam and Eve's thinking and tempted them into rebellion against the king. That condemned them to a life of exile from the garden and grappling with a world that was cursed and broken because that's the devil's desire. In John 10.10, Jesus says that the devil is a thief who comes only to steal and kill and destroy That's what the devil tries to do. He tries to corrupt everything and corrupt and destroy our lives. And he'll either do that in us or he'll do that through us. You see, he's always looking for a willing accomplice who will come alongside and do his work, whether they realise it or not, to destroy God's people and to destroy the world. And in Pharaoh, he finds just the right type of person. You see, when Pharaoh comes onto the scene, he's not just a a random bad guy. He's part of the devil's long assault on God's good purposes. And this Exodus, Exodus 1, is now the next round in the great battle between good and evil, between God and the devil. But it's a fight that the devil cannot win. You see, when Adam and Eve fell from grace... God pronounced a sentence against Adam and Eve, but then also against the devil. Genesis 3.15, he says to the serpent, to the devil, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, it's not just talking about what happens with snakes. They kind of nip at our heels and try to bong them on the head. It's, it's actually explaining the conflict that's happening behind the scenes that runs through history. The devil is trying to destroy humanity, to try to bruise our heels, so to speak. But God has promised that there will be one from the offspring of Eve, a human who will arise to overcome the devil, to bruise his head, to destroy him. Kevin DeYoung, a great theologian and writer and preacher, has written this wonderful kid story called The Bigger Story. 
And this really tells how this story plays out throughout history and through the Bible. And he calls this figure the snake crusher, the one, the child of Eve, who will arise to destroy the serpent, to destroy the destroyer. And what we need to see is that the devil is desperately trying to stop this happening. He knows that there is someone who's going to come who will destroy him, and so he must try to stop that. And you see this playing out right through the Bible. So in Genesis 6, for instance, we're told that the Lord saw the wickedness of man that was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. He responds by sending a great flood and there's only one family that remains. And so the future of humanity is is there and it's in peril. The line of Eve from which the snake crusher will emerge is hanging by a thread. The devil's purposes are almost complete. But you know what God says to Noah after the flood? Genesis 9, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God restarts creation. God finds a a new generation through whom he can work and give his promises. Now Abraham's an ex and so on and so on. And when we get to Exodus 1, we see the devil finds another opportunity to try and destroy his destroyer. Tim Chester writes, Egypt will be the site of the latest battle between those who belong to the snake and those who belong to the promise. If Satan can destroy Abraham's family, then he can prevent the Saviour being born and prevent his own defeat. That's the overlay for this passage. That's the overlay for this whole book. There is this bigger story, this great spiritual conflict The devil is desperately trying to stop God's plans and to destroy God's people. We're going to see that play out. And perhaps as we hear this, it all seems a bit bizarre, a bit mythical, a bit crazy. We are so uh, unused to thinking about the devil as a real uh, present force in our world. The Bible speaks about it constantly the principalities and powers that are there with genuine power. And we're going to see that throughout this book, that the devil is active, always trying to destroy us or to lead us astray. But we're also going to see that he can never win, that his plans are foiled. You see, Exodus doesn't just point us back to Genesis. It points us forward to another moment in the history of God's people. In the Gospel of Matthew in the New Testament, we read about another great king, Herod, Herod the Great, a mighty king, but one just as insecure as the king of Egypt. In Matthew 2, he hears word from the wise men of the east that a child is going to be born in Bethlehem, and he worries. He fears that this child will take his power. So he's desperate to try and stop this child being born or to get rid of him as soon as he can. The wise men are warned that this is his plan. Joseph is warned, and so he takes the child away. And then we're told in Matthew 2, verse 16, when when Herod saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, he became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. 
It's almost the exact same story as Exodus 1. A great king trying to destroy and be willing to kill anyone that he, who might get in his way. It's the devil once more trying to kill the snake crusher, trying to destroy the one who will destroy him. And, of course, that child born in Bethlehem was Jesus the one who would grow up to become the snake crusher and our saviour. As you read the Gospels, you see how desperately the devil is trying to destroy him. He tries to tempt him to disobey God, just like he had compasses, Adam. But Jesus stands firm. He finds willing accomplices in those who have evil intentions and they try to destroy Jesus. But he stands firm, he stays faithful even unto death. Perhaps the devil thought that he had won when Jesus was hanging there on that cross. If the Jewish authorities didn't understand that that was how Jesus was going to to win, I'm sure the devil didn't either. He must have imagined that he had finally won, that he had destroyed his destroyer. But, of course, we know that it was actually in his death that Jesus claimed the victory. It was in his death that Jesus showed his power. The devil, the thief, had come to steal and kill and destroy, but Jesus, God's own son, had come to take our sin, to take evil and to give us life. And at the cross, he confirmed this, Colossians 2, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. You see, the devil will keep fighting, desperately clawing at us, trying to destroy us, trying to lead other people astray, but Jesus has struck the decisive blow. He has claimed the victory over sin and death and over evil itself. And we're told in 2 Corinthians that all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Christ. All the promises that God made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to everyone since, find their fulfilment in Jesus. He is the star, the hero of the bigger story. He confirms all of God's plans. And we get a picture in Revelation of how that it happens. Revelation 7, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's a picture of heaven, of course. And you see the promises that God made to Abraham finally fulfilled. Someone from his line has destroyed the devil. We see this blessing to all nations. Every tribe and tongue has now gathered in the land of heaven to be with God forever. That is the bigger story. And as we step into Exodus, I want us to keep this bigger story in mind. 
as we watch God's people struggle and strive and fall and be redeemed and rescued and all of these things, I want us to see the bigger story, the story of good and evil, of God and the devil, but of God's promises, of God blessing his people because he set his heart on them and on us and to see that he is the ultimate victor. Let's pray. Father God, we pray to you, the victor. We read this story and we see the strange privilege of being your people. We see your promises and we see some of them fulfilled, but we also see the flip side and those who would oppose and oppress. And we see that in our own world, perhaps even in our own lives. So in the midst of that, help us to see that you have sent Jesus to fulfill all the promises. In Christ, we can have every spiritual blessing. Thank you that you have won, that you have triumphed over all those who would oppose you and oppose us. Thank you that you died so that we could have life, life with you, life secure forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.